Lord, we cling to your promise that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We believe that as we gather in your name and behold your word, that you do indeed meet us, that you are indeed with us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, our great desire is that you would speak to us through your word now and make us into your image, make us a people fit for you. Make us a people that reflects the character of your kingdom in this world. A people that find joy and satisfaction and hope and rest in you. We pray that you would do this necessary work today as we continue to wait for your return. I pray this morning that as we behold Christ in your word that we would truly rest in him. That we would learn what it is to rest in Jesus. That you would keep us in the faith through the power of your word at work in us. I pray that your word would bear much fruit in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, friends. We are in Matthew chapter 11. Corbin, could you turn me down a bit? I think I'm a little loud. I sometimes use my teacher voice too, so we'll see. There we go. Um, We're in Matthew chapter 11, and we are going to cover the second half of Matthew chapter 11. Last week, we saw in the first half of Matthew 11 that Jesus is now shifting to encounter more opposition in his role as Messiah, as he comes as a Messiah that is outside of the norm of what is expected by God's people Israel. He encounters doubt in John and even disdain in the crowds as he refuses to dance to their tune. He continues this theme in the second half of Matthew 11 as he denounces cities. Matthew 11.20 says he began to denounce the cities where most of his works have been done. We'll see Jesus do this, and then we'll see this call at the end of Matthew 11. Even as he has this progressive response to unbelief, we see this beautiful call that many of us are familiar with in Matthew 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We see Jesus promise rest, and yet, as I was contemplating this text this week, it occurred to me that for many of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, following Jesus does not always feel like rest. Following Jesus sometimes feels quite burdensome, not even a light burden like he talks about at the end of Matthew 11, but actually a heavy burden. Some, even when they hear the call to come to Jesus, turn away from that call because it feels burdensome, because it feels heavy, and they already feel weighed down by the burdens of this world. It occurred to me that I think it would be helpful for us to consider why a call that's come and rest can land on us as burdensome 
Or why, in other words, is it difficult to actually come and rest in Jesus? Why, if this is what is called for in the Christian life, do we find it so difficult? I think the key in understanding why this is difficult is considering Jesus' flow of thought in verses 20 to 30 as a whole, as a unit. Together, Jesus brings together three things that I think are vital for hearing the call to come and rest in him. We'll see as we read through this text in verses 20 to 24, Jesus warns the wise. Jesus brings this warning to those who would consider themselves wise. The response that they ought to have and the response that we need to have and one of the missing ingredients in our responding to the call to come and rest is actually repentance. We'll see how that connects as we go through. Then we'll see in verses 25 to 27 that in response to opposition and conflict and the the wise failing to actually come and rest in Jesus, Jesus praises the Father. Jesus praises the Father for his good and sovereign plan. He praises the goodness of God. And we'll see that what we are called to do when we behold that in Jesus is we are called to rejoice in that as well. To praise the Father similarly. And we'll see then in verses 28 to 30 that when Jesus gives this call to come and rest in him, it's a call to the weak. It's a call to those who are little. It's a call to those who are burdened and weary. And we'll see that we are called indeed to rest. But that is an active, joy-filled rest. Not merely a collapsing on the floor of Jesus' throne. As we put these things together, repenting, rejoicing, and resting, I think we will see how missing any one of these causes us to actually not truly enter into the kind of rest That Jesus calls his people to. So that's my hope for us this morning. Let's read Matthew 11, 20 to 30. And consider the text together. Would you read with me? Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities. Where most of his mighty works had been done. Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you. Had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago. In sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We see these first 
few verses, verses 20 to 24, that Jesus issues a warning to the wise. Jesus brings a warning to the wise, and he does it through a comparison. A comparison of three modern cities, modern in Jesus' time, with three ancient cities from the Old Testament. He compares these three modern cities to Tyre and Sidon. And if you don't know those cities, that is okay. They are mentioned a few times in the Old Testament. They are less familiar to many of us, but I want to remind us of the significance of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were Canaanite cities, the inhabitants of the promised land before Israel came into the land. Israel did not drive out the inhabitants of the land, and many of them fought and warred against Israel, Tyre and Sidon included. When Tyre and Sidon turned to Yahweh during Solomon's reign, there was a brief break of antagonism. Solomon was king, and Tyre and Sidon came to worship Yahweh for a brief time. But they quickly turned away back to their old idols, so much so even that later Queen Jezebel came from Sidon. They antagonized Israel. They tempted Israel to idolatry, and many times they succeeded in causing Israel herself to abandon Yahweh. So God pronounced great judgment on them. All through the prophets, Tyre and Sidon are condemned as those deserving judgment. So much so that they became themselves a parable of God's judgment. God fulfilled his judgment by destroying these cities. Tyre itself was an island even. And Alexander the Great built a basically giant land bridge out to the island so that he could sack the city. God judged Tyre and Sidon severely, so much so that just the mere mention of them meant God's judgment. You might not be familiar with those ones, but I bet you're familiar with Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? God judged Sodom so severely that most people who have read any amount of their Bible are familiar with the city of Sodom as not a good thing to be compared to. Sodom, the story is told of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19. It's where Lot settled, Abraham's brother-in-law. He settled there, and during the time of his settlement there, the city grew increasingly evil, so much so that when God sent messengers to Sodom and Gomorrah to bring Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah, instead of welcoming God's messengers, the people of the city sought to break down Lot's door and abuse them. God destroyed the city by fire in such a severe judgment that when Lot's wife looked back, She was turned to a pillar of salt for looking back at this place under God's judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah was judged so severely that we still think of Sodom as a parable of God's judgment. What could be worse than essentially having your name stand for the judgment of God throughout history? So much so that thousands of years later, your name is still a mark of judgment. Jesus says that there is something indeed that is worse. He compares these ancient cities to the modern cities in his day. And he says it'll be more bearable for them than for you on the day of judgment. Notice he says in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. He does the same thing comparing Capernaum and Sodom. He says it will be more tolerable, verse 24, 
it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. These three modern cities we're not super familiar with either. You may have heard of Capernaum. That's the main kind of home base for where Jesus has been doing his works as he's been spending time in Galilee. Bethsaida and Chorazin were also cities around the Sea of Galilee. These are all the cities that are experiencing the mighty works of Jesus, right? He says, the mighty works have been done in them. Verse 20, the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Why is Jesus rebuking these cities? Why is it worse for them on the day of judgment than even for a horrible, horrible city like Sodom? Jesus says it's because they did not repent in light of these mighty works. They did not repent at what? At Jesus himself coming as the Messiah, performing miracles, right? We talked about Jesus performing his miracles so much so that he says to John, when he's telling his disciples in 11.5, look at what you see, look at what you hear. You see people raised from the dead. You see the lame healed. You see the, the broken restored. All of these miracles that I have been doing, that we've been talking about, all of these things are pointing to the presence of the kingdom of heaven. And these people who have front row seats to this happening have rejected the one doing them. They have rejected the Messiah, right? They refused to repent. Why? Because Jesus didn't dance to their tune like we read about last week. They said, you know, we played uh, the flute for you and you did not dance. Verse 17, we sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. We did what we wanted you to do. We called for a response and you didn't do what we wanted you to do. Jesus and John did not just capitulate to the crowds. And so they refuse. To repent. We also have this interesting statement about Capernaum in verse 23. Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? That shows us the depth of their refusal to repent in a little nod to Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon is boasting that he will be he will go up to heaven. He will ascend to the heavens. Basically, he himself will reach the status of God. And Isaiah the prophet says, no, actually, you'll be brought down to Hades. And here is Capernaum saying something similar, possibly, I think even likely, because they have been the home base of Jesus as he's performed these miracles, saying, look at how important we are. Look at how great our city is. The Messiah, who we don't really, we don't really know if we believe yet, but this, this miracle worker, this guy doing all these mighty things, has come here and chosen us as his home base. They might have, if they were advertising for the city, put, come and see the miracle worker, Jesus. Their self-exalting pride causes them to lift themselves up. And yet Jesus says, woe to them. They will be brought down to Hades for if the mighty works done in them had been done in Sodom, a land of great wickedness, great evil, Sodom would have repented. Jesus is rebuking the wise here for refusal to repent. And it's really important for us to notice who he is rebuking, who the wise are. This is not just some random people. This is not merely the pagans surrounding Jesus. This is God's chosen people that he is rebuking. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. These are Jewish cities. 
filled with Jewish people awaiting the Messiah. And yet they have refused to repent when the Messiah has come. Jesus coming, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. I am the one you've been waiting for in these cities. And the people in these cities are refusing to present. Or to, excuse me, to repent. Even though they had Jesus present with them. Okay? Think about this for a second. They had Jesus present with them as the Messiah. They are God's chosen people. They are primed and ready for a revival. To respond to the presence of the Savior with faith and repentance. And yet they refuse to repent. Okay? This means that the problem wasn't that they didn't know who Jesus was. The problem wasn't that they didn't have Jesus among them. The problem was that they had Jesus among them and it made no difference. It didn't matter. They had Jesus among them and nothing changed. The, this is why Jesus says that it will be greater punishment for them on the day of judgment. That it will be more bearable for these evil and wicked pagan Gentile cities than it will for these Jewish cities who experienced the very presence of the Messiah, Jesus with them, and nothing changed. I think we see a commentary of sorts on this concept in the book of Hebrews. Right? Hebrews starts out in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Right? Think about how God rescued the people of Nineveh, caused them to repent. He sent them a reluctant prophet who didn't want to go. And then when he went anyway, because God made him, he begrudgingly pronounced God's judgment. And God turned their hearts away from their sin and rebellion. Right? God rescued the people of Nineveh through the prophet Jonah. And here is the book of Hebrews saying God spoke to his people at various times and in various ways through the prophets, people like Jonah. But now he has spoken to us through his son. There is a greater revelation now through Jesus Christ, the prophet, the one that's greater than Jonah, as he'll talk about later in Matthew. He sent this prophet and what does that mean for us? Hebrews 2 says this. Hebrews 2, chapter, or 2, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In other words, God spoke through his prophets in the olden days and warned his people. And they refused to repent and they received consequence, right? One of the reasons God's people were sent into exile is because they refused to listen to his prophets saying, repent, turn from your idolatry. Come back to the Lord. Find your rest in him. Some who listened, like Nineveh listening to Jonah, experienced refreshment, experienced rest, experienced reconciliation. 
Now God has sent his ultimate prophet, Jesus. How much more than are the stakes? How much higher are the stakes? How much more significant is it when we refuse to listen? That's what Jesus is saying to these cities. I am the ultimate revelation of God's faithfulness as the Messiah. I am the ultimate one telling you to repent from your idolatry and turn back to the Lord. How much worse the judgment if you fail to listen. And so, he warns the wise by pronouncing these woes and rebuking them and calling them to repent. I think this is a warning for us. Because if it's true for them who experience the presence of Jesus in these miracles... How much more true for us as his New Testament church who now have the fullness of the revelation of what it means to have a crucified and risen Savior, right? We have a greater revelation even than them. First Peter calls it things that angels longed to look into, that the prophets prophesied of old, not knowing that they were doing it for our benefit. We have been given a greater revelation, and with that greater revelation comes a greater responsibility to repent, And a greater judgment when we refuse to. Like these cities, merely having Jesus among us, merely knowing who Jesus is, is not what God calls for. It actually brings judgment. If we know who Jesus is and have him among us and refuse to repent, if we hear the good news of the kingdom of heaven is near, but do not hear the call to repent and do not heed it, then we ourselves will experience judgment. I think this is part of why we seek to find rest in Jesus and fail to actually rest in him. I think sometimes when we hear this call, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, we hear that call without hearing The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Without hearing the call to repent of our wicked ways, we hear come to Jesus just as you are, which is true. But we don't think about the fact that he calls us to take on a yoke. And that means actually changing how we live. We'll see more of that as we go through. We're called to become like little children. To repent of our wickedness and to take his yoke upon us. This is a key factor, but it's not the only factor. Jesus experiences this rejection from those who should have repented, who should have turned from their wickedness. And notice how he responds to this kind of rejection in verse 25. He's just said, this generation is like children sitting in the marketplace saying you didn't dance. He's just said these cities have refused to repent. And now he says this in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. In other words, Jesus responds to the rejection of the world, the rejection of him by the world. He responds with praise to his father. Why does he give thanks To God in light of this rejection. Why give thanks for a whole cities that are refusing to repent? Notice what he says. 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus is giving thanks for God's goodness on display in his sovereignty, sovereignly revealing and sovereignly hiding the truth of who Jesus is. When he says these things, he's talking about his nature (coughs) as the true Messiah. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things or hidden the very nature of who I am. So part of the reason why these cities are not repenting is because God has hidden it from them. Why would God do that? That seems strange to us. Look at who he says they've hidden, God's hidden them from. Hidden them from these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. When he's talking about the wise and understanding, he can't really be talking about those who are actually wise, right? Think about it for a sec. What does wisdom mean in the scriptures? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Wisdom and understanding would have embraced the Messiah, would have repented and turned from wickedness. So if he's not talking about actually wise people, who is he talking about? I believe the key is thinking in terms of like Matthew nine thirteen, when Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is not actually saying that there are people apart from him who are indeed righteous, right? He's making a contrast between those who believe they are righteous, in their own eyes are righteous, and those who know that they are sinners. And something similar is happening here, I believe. When Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, he's not talking about who is actually wise and understanding and who is a little child. He's talking about those who believe and see themselves as wise and understanding apart from God. Those people who are, have that self-confident, self-exaltation that he condemned in Capernaum. Who say, we will be exalted to heaven apart from God. On our own merit, on our own account. When he says little children, he's not talking merely about little kids. He's talking about those who humble themselves. Those who, like he says later in Matthew eighteen three, receive the kingdom like little children. Who have humbled themselves, who recognize that what they thought was wisdom is not actually wise. That the wisdom of this world is actually foolishness. This is what he means when he says this is God's gracious will. I think of First Corinthians chapter 1. Many of you are probably familiar with that chapter where we see this contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Right? 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 25 says this, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? This is what it means for God to hide from the wise and understanding and reveal to little ones. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, the cross sounds foolishness, right? Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, (coughs) God, through his divine wisdom, in order to show the foolishness of claiming to be wise and understanding, chose to shame the wisdom of the world through the apparent foolishness of the cross. And part of that plan is to hide the truth of Jesus, the truth of the cross, the truth of the Messiah come from those who would claim to be wise and understanding in their own eyes and reveal it to those who would be considered fools. Those who would be considered lowly, meek, like our Savior himself. Jesus praises the Father for this good plan. So in other words, when he encounters all of this rejection and condemnation, when he encounters the opposition of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum and their refusal to repent, he praises the Father because he recognizes that this displays the Father's goodwill. That this displays the goodness of God in subverting the expectations of the culture. That these cities are not actually wise and their foolishness will actually be borne out and shown by their judgment we look at them and we say and i mean we even experience that today right we look at them and we say how could you not know how could you not embrace jesus being with you performing these miracles seeing these things how could you be so foolish and that's really fulfilling god's plan right to 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 show the foolishness Of rejecting Christ, refusing to repent when he is among these cities. Jesus praises God for this. And he praises him for sharing all things with Christ. Right? We see that in verse 27. This almost John-like meditation. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We see here the Father and Son united in possessing all things, heaven and earth. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And yet we see the paradox on display if we think about Jesus' experience with these cities and with these peoples, right? He said when it comes to following him that he will have nowhere to lay his head. He said that in Matthew 8. Even though he possesses everything, he has nowhere to call home, nowhere to lay his head. Even though he possesses everything, he will often be hungry. He will often be thirsty. He will often be in peril because of his mission, because of this plan that the Father has to hide from those who would deem themselves wise and understanding and reveal instead to the weak the truth of his word. He praises God for sharing with him not only possession of everything, but for sharing with him in a singular purpose. Notice it's the Father who hides and reveals, right? Jesus praises him because he is hidden and revealed in verse 25. And yet, what does the Son do? The Son himself can choose to reveal the Father to others. He takes part with the Father in his revealing Work. This is why he says in verse 28, come to me. 
This is why he says in John's gospel, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He praises the father and takes joy and delight and rejoices in this fact that they are united in this purpose. This is costly for Jesus to rejoice in these things. It would be easy for Jesus to take all of this authority that God has granted him in giving him all things and to seek instead to make his life easier, right? If he's been given all this authority, it would be tempting, I would imagine, instead of just pronouncing these woes, to just rain down some good old-fashioned fire and brimstone on Capernaum. You know, like that would show him, right? Like, let's light the whole city on fire. And then maybe they would believe. It would be tempting for Jesus to subvert the wise and good plan of the Father and to live a life free of suffering. But instead, Jesus embraces this plan as his own. And it leads to a life of suffering and death. But then it leads to resurrection and exaltation, ultimately. Jesus talks, or Paul talks about this in Philippians about Christ when he says that as a result of his death, he is highly exalted. Jesus doesn't use his authority to change the plan. Rather, he uses it to carry out the plan. And he rejoices in this because he delights in the Father and in his good plan. This calls us, I think as well, to rejoice similarly in the plan of the Father. To reveal to the weak and to hide from the wise and understanding. Why might this be difficult to rejoice in, you might wonder. Like, hey, that sounds great. I think it's difficult to rejoice in. Because I think the reality is that we are often the self-important, wise, and understanding in this equation. I think it's difficult to rejoice in because by default, we are the ones who think we are wise and understanding and not in need of repentance. We think we're the little ones, but we're actually the ones in need of repentance. It's easy to say, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children when we think we're the little children. But instead, God calls us to recognize that we approach him as those who are wise and understanding in our own eyes and need to repent and become like the little children. I think we need to rejoice in the fact that we are called to learn humility in the path to finding rest. That we come to know God not by exalting ourselves to heaven, but by coming to the Son, humble and broken and crushed. This is harder to rejoice in, I think. It's hard to rejoice in a salvation that requires humility because we don't like humility. We like thinking highly of ourselves. It requires repentance and it requires true joy in the right places. It requires that we rejoice... That God has handed all things over to Christ and not to us. When we do, we learn to find true joy. We learn to find true rejoicing that is Christ-filled. Not Christ-less. I think we see the call to repent and the call to rejoice as part of a path that leads then to hearing this call to come and rest. But if we just stay with this call to 
repent and call to rejoice, it can become, it can become, I think, a heavy burden itself, a, a legalism, if you will, that we evaluate ourselves and we say, have I repented enough to come to Christ? Have I rejoiced enough in the right things that I am now fit to come? This is the kind of burden that the Pharisees were often hanging around the necks of those they were ministering to. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 23. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. These burdens they were tying up is this question, have I done enough to come? We must not form a new legalism that says we need to do enough to come to Jesus because Jesus himself says, come to me. All authority in heaven and earth was given to him And he has this authority in verse 27 to reveal the Father. And what does he choose to do with that? He chooses to call people to come to him so that he can reveal the Father to them. His call is good news because he calls the weak. He welcomes the weak to him. All who labor and are heavy laden, all who are like little children, weak and unable to help themselves, All who are burdened down, harassed, helpless, like we've seen already in Matthew. All who are the poor in spirit, like he said in the Beatitudes. Those who are meek, those who are weary, those who are crushed, he calls to come. It's the very burdens that people bear that fit them to come to Christ. Not merely because, and not because it qualifies them in some way. But because bearing these kind of burdens, being crushed under this weight, actually brings God's people into humility. They're actually humbled by their unworthiness to come, and so they're better fit to come as those who are the little children. For God's people during Christ's time, this was laboring under the yoke of a heavy law. This was laboring under the Mosaic law apart from the grace of Christ. For many other people, this is being burdened by the cares of living in a fallen world. This world is hard. It leads to weariness. It leads to laboring without a feeling of fruitfulness. Like we read about in Ecclesiastes, it leads to toil that seems to have no end and no results. But Jesus calls all of those who are weak to come to him and find rest. But it's a a unique kind of rest that he promises. And I think this is part of the challenge of why we struggle to rest in Christ is that we don't understand the nature of this rest. Notice, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he says in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. This idea of taking my yoke upon you and learning from me is not in addition to coming to Jesus. That is part of coming to Jesus. They are intertwined so closely that he's basically saying the same thing. 
To come to Jesus means to take on his yoke and learn from him. And the fact that it is a yoke means that the rest that he promises is not a rest without work. It's not a rest doing nothing. It's not the kind of rest that we might think of when we think of going on vacation, for example. Instead, this kind of rest is informed by the kind of rest that God called his people to in the Old Testament. If you read the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 3 and 4 are talking about entering a particular kind of rest. And it's reflecting on the kind of rest that God offered to his people in the Old Testament, which was what? Bringing them through the wilderness to the promised land, where they would experience life and blessing in the promised land, in in the kingdom of God, with the king, with God dwelling among them, being with them. It's life in the kingdom with the king. That's the kind of rest that Jesus calls us to as well when he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, (coughs) and I will give you rest. It's life with the king in his kingdom, Jesus being the king and his kingdom being what he's bringing, right? This is a rest that is a working rest, and so he calls us to take on this yoke. What is that yoke that brings rest? He says, take on my yoke and learn from me, which I think points to what Jesus has been doing in this gospel, which is what? Teaching. He's been teaching his disciples what it means to take on his yoke. The bulk of that teaching has been in recorded for us in Matthew 5 through 7, right? This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus talked about life in the kingdom is like. He's saying, take on this life, learn from me this life through my teaching, and you will find rest. The yoke itself points to work, which Jesus has been doing and equipping his disciples to do, right? In Matthew 10, he sends them out to do the work that he is doing. Taking his yoke upon you means joining him in the work. Often oxen were yoked together. More than one animal wore a yoke. And so when Jesus uses this image and says, it's my yoke, take it on you. He's not saying take it off him and put it on you. He's saying join him in the work. Join yourself to him. This rest that comes, living life with the king in his kingdom, comes through joining yourself to him in his work, learning to love his word and his ways, coming to Jesus and joining yourself to him, you will find rest for your souls. This rest is true life. This rest is the best life. This rest is the only way to life. And it is truly rest. You won't find it by trying to form a new law that you have repented enough and you have rejoiced enough and now you're resting enough and somehow all of these things are combining to give you what you want out of Jesus. Beware of taking Jesus' yoke without actually coming to him. It's light. It's easy because it's with Jesus, not because it itself is easy. Beware though as well I think, and this is what he's warning us in verses 20 to 24, beware of coming to Jesus without actually taking his yoke, right? This is what repentance looks like. 
It's turning from seeking our soul's satisfaction, hope, desire, all of these things in the things of this world. It's turning from that sin and seeking those things instead in God, finding our rest in Christ. We need to be aware of, beware of abusing the freedom to come and presuming upon God's grace and merely trying to find rest from our guilty conscience. Instead, we repent of our sin. We rejoice in God's goodness revealed in Christ, the goodness of his plan and providence, and we rest in Jesus, free of any works of our own, but instead we work in light of his work. Following Jesus is burdensome. We fail to truly rest when we miss one of these components, but it's not a linear process. It's not like you repent and then you rejoice and then you rest. It's all of these things together forming a comprehensive picture of the Christian life. The Christian life is one of repentance. The Christian life is one of rejoicing in God's work and his ways. The Christian life is one of resting even as we labor. If we fail to do one of these things, then we will find ourselves straying from the core of the Christian life. We will not enter into that true rest where we experience life with the king in his kingdom. Friends, I want to end with a picture of this rest from Samuel Rutherford. I was reading in his letters earlier this week. And Rutherford frequently is dealing with intense suffering. He writes repeatedly to people who are experiencing suffering, and he himself was even at times locked down and prohibited from preaching the gospel. The thing he loved to do, he was prohibited from doing by the magistrates around him. And he writes this to a, 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 a woman experiencing suffering in her own life related to following Christ. And he says this, Oh, how sweet are the sufferings of Christ for Christ. God forgive them that raise an ill report upon the sweet cross of Christ. It is but our weak and dim eyes and our looking only to the black side that makes us mistake. Those who can take that crabbed tree handsomely upon their back, and fasten it on cannily, shall find it such a burden as wings unto a bird, or sails to a ship. I, I love that picture that he paints, of wings on a bird, or sails on a ship. The burden, the yoke of coming to Christ, when taken rightly in light of our repentance, our rejoicing, our finding rest in Him, will not be a burden, but will be like wings on a bird that enables flight, right? Or sails on a ship that are filled with wind and then causes uh, the ship to sail safely into harbor. Samuel Rutherford knew this, that taking on the burden of the cross, taking on the yoke of Christ, meant joy precisely because it is a yoke that brings life. And that's what Christ is trying to tell us in this text, I believe, this morning. Let's pray and ask God to help us find rest and life in him. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for rejoicing in your Father's wisdom to call the weak. And thank you for 
using your own authority to welcome the weak to come to you. Jesus, we are those weak people. And I pray that you would help us see that truly and clearly every day. That we would not grow prideful or arrogant or look to our own wisdom or resources for surety and stability. But we would instead continually come and find our rest in you. I pray that you would help that be an active rest. A rest that works not for our own assurance, but that works flowing out of the grace that you have already granted. Out of the joy that you have already given. Jesus, how all this works, how you do this by your spirit, is often a mystery to us. But we see it so clearly in your word. I pray that you would help us live out that reality that it's not us who works, but it's you who work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. And that this brings us tremendous joy and life and peace. We pray that you'd help us live this out in your name. Amen.